Part three, chapter ten of War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. At dawn, on the twenty eighth, Denisov's squadron, in which Nikolai Rostov served, and which belonged to Prince Bagration's division, marched out from its bouviac to battle, as it was said, and after proceeding about a verst, behind the other columns, was halted on the highway. Rostov saw the Cossacks riding forward past them, then the first and second squadron of hussars, and battalions of infantry and artillery, and then the generals, Bagration and Dolgorukov, and their adjutants also rode by. All the fear which, just as at the previous battle, he had experienced before the action, all the internal conflict, by means of which he had overcome this fear, all his dreams of how he would distinguish himself in hussar fashion, in this action, were wasted, their squadron were stationed in the reserve, and Nikolai Rostov spent that day bored and anxious. About nine o'clock in the morning he heard at the front the sounds of musketry firing, huzzas, and shouting. He saw some wounded men carried to the rear. There were not many of them, and at last he beheld a whole division of French cavalrymen, conducted by in charge of a sotnya of Cossacks. Evidently the action was at an end, and though it appeared to be of small magnitude, it was attended with success. The soldiers and the officers, as they returned, narrated the story of their brilliant victory, resulting in the occupation of the city of Vischau and the capture of a whole squadron of the French. The day was clear and sunny, after the nipping frost of the night before, and the joyful brilliancy of an autumn day seemed to harmonize with the news of the victory, which was confirmed not only by the narratives of those who had taken part in it, but still more by the enthusiastic faces of the soldiers, officers, generals, and adjutants, passing this way and that before Rostov. Nikolai's heart was the heavier for having suffered to no purpose all the pangs of fear anticipatory of the battle, and then being obliged to spend this glorious day in inaction. Vostov, come here. Let us drown our sorrow in drink,' cried Denisov, seated on the edge of the road, with a flask and lunch spread before him. The officers gathered in a circle around Denisov's bottle-case, eating their lunch and chatting. "'Here they come, bringing another,' exclaimed one of the officers, pointing to a French dragoon who had been made prisoner, and was walking along under guard of two Cossacks. One of them was leading by the bridle a large, handsome French horse that had been taken from the prisoner. "'Sell us the horse,' cried Denisov to the Cossack. "'Certainly, your nobility.' The officers sprang up and crowded around the Cossacks and the prisoner. The French dragoon was a young Alsatian, speaking French with a German accent. He was quite out of breath with emotion. His face was crimson. Hearing the officers talking French, he began to speak with them eagerly, turning to one and another of them. He told them that he ought not to have been taken, and that it was not his fault he was taken, but the fault of Le Caporal, who had sent him to get some caparisons, and that he told him the Russians were already there. And at the end of every sentence he added, mais qu'on ne fasse pas de mal à mon petit cheval. Don't let them harm my little horse, at the same time petting his coat. It was evident that he didn't understand very well what had happened to him. Now he apologized for having been captured. Then, as though he imagined himself in the presence of his own superiors, he vaunted his strict attention to the duties of a soldier and his zeal in the service. He brought with him to our rear-guard in all its freshness the very atmosphere of the French army, which was so foreign to our men. The Cossacks sold the horse for two ducats, and Rostov, who was now just possessed of money in plenty, and was the richest of the officers, bought it. 
Mais qu'on ne fasse pas de mal à mon petit cheval, said the Alsatian good-naturedly to Rostov, when the horse was handed over to the hussar. Rostov, with a smile, reassured the dragoon and gave him some money. Aliou, aliou, said the Cossack, attempting to speak in French and touching the prisoner's arm to make him move on. Gozuda, gozuda, the emperor, the emperor, was suddenly heard among the hussars. All was hurry and confusion as the officers scattered, and Rostov distinguished down the road a number of horsemen with white plumes in their hats riding toward them. In a moment's time all were in their places and waiting. Rostov did not remember and had no consciousness of how he got to his place and mounted his horse. Instantly his disappointment at not being present at the skirmish, the mutinous frame of mind that he had felt during the hours of inaction, passed away. Every thought about himself instantly vanished. He was perfectly absorbed in the sense of happiness arising from the proximity of his sovereign. He felt himself compensated by the mere fact of his presence for all the loss of the day. He was as happy as a lover in expectation of the wished-for meeting. Not daring to look down the line, and not glancing around, he felt his approach by his enthusiastic sense. And he felt this was not alone by the mere trampling of the horse's hoofs as the cavalcade rode along, but he felt it because in proportion as they drew near, all around him grew brighter, more radiant with joy, more impressive and festive. Nearer and nearer came what was the sun for Rostov, scattering around him rays of blissful and majestic light, and now at last he realized that he was enveloped by these rays. He heard his voice, that affable, serene, majestic, and at the same time utterly unaffected voice. A dead silence ensued, just as Rostov felt ought to be the case, and this silence was broken by the sound of his sovereign's voice. Les Hussards de Pavlograd? he asked. La Reserva, sire, replied some other voice, a mere human voice, after the superhuman voice which had asked if they were the Pavlograd hussars. The emperor came up near where Rostov was and reined in his horse. Alexander's face was still more beautiful than it had been three days before at the time of the parade. It fairly beamed with delight and youthful spirits, such innocently youthful spirits that it reminded one of the sportiveness of a fourteen-year-old lad, and yet, nevertheless, it was the face of a majestic emperor. Chancing to glance down the squadron, the sovereign's eyes met Rostov's, and for upwards of two seconds gazed into them. Maybe the sovereign read what was passing in Rostov's soul. It certainly seemed to Rostov that he must know it. At all events, he fixed his blue eyes for the space of two seconds on Rostov's face. A sweet and gentle light seemed to emanate from them. Then suddenly his eyebrows contracted, and with a brusque movement of his left foot, he spurred his horse and galloped forward. The young emperor could not restrain his desire to be present at the battle, and in spite of all objections of his courtiers, he managed about twelve o'clock to leave the third column, under whose escort he had been moving, and spurred off to the front. But before he reached the hussars he was met by adjutants with the report of the happy issue of the skirmish. The engagement, which was merely the capture of a squadron of French, was represented as a brilliant victory, and consequently the sovereign, and the whole army, after this, and especially before the smoke had cleared away from the field of battle, were firmly convinced that the French were conquered and were in full retreat. A few minutes after the passing of the sovereign, the division of the Pavlograd hussars were ordered to advance. In the little German town of Vischau, Rostov saw the emperor yet a second time. 
in the town square where just before the sovereign's arrival there had been a pretty lively interchange of shots still lay a number of men killed and wounded whom it had not been possible as yet to remove the sovereign surrounded by his suite of military and civil attendants and riding a chestnut mare groomed in english style though not the same one which he had ridden at the parade leaning over and gracefully holding a gold lorgnette to his eye was looking at a soldier stretched out on the ground without his shako and with his head all covered with blood the soldier was so filthy rough and disgusting that rostov was quite affronted that he should be so near his majesty rostov saw how the sovereign's stooping shoulders contracted as though a chill ran down his back and how his left heel convulsively pressed the spur into the horse's side and how the admirably trained animal looked around good-naturedly and did not stir from his place an adjutant dismounted and taking the soldier under the arm assisted to lift him to a stretcher which had just been brought the soldier groaned gently gently can't you lift him more gently exclaimed the sovereign apparently suffering more keenly than the dying soldier and rode away rostov saw the tears that filled his monarch's eyes and heard him say in french to Tsartoriski as he rode away what a terrible thing war is what a terrible thing quelle terrible chose que la guerre the vanguard had been stationed in front of Vizjau, in sight of the enemy's pickets who had left us the place after desultory firing that had lasted all day the vanguard had been personally congratulated and thanked by the emperor rewards had been promised and a double portion of vodka had been dealt out to the men the bouviac fires crackled even more merrily than the night before and the soldiers songs rang out with greater gusto denisof that night gave a supper in honour of his promotion as major and rostov who had already taken his share of wine at the end of the merrymaking proposed a toast to the sovereign's health not to the sovereign emperor the gozuda emperor as he is called in official circles said he but the health of the sovereign as a kind-hearted lovable and great man let us drink to his health and to our probable victory over the french if we fought well before he went on to say and gave no quarter to the french at schongraben will not this be the case now when he himself leads us we will all die gladly die for him isn't that so gentlemen perhaps i do not express myself very well for i have been drinking a good deal but that's what i feel and so do you all to the health of alexander i hurrah 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 rang the hearty voices of the officers and the old captain kirsten shouted just as heartily and no less sincerely than the twenty-year-old rostov when the officers had drunken the toast and broken their glasses kirsten got a fresh one and filled it and in his shirt-sleeves and riding trousers with the glass in his hand went to the campfire of some of the soldiers assuming a majestic pose waving his hand over his head stood with his long grey moustache and white chest visible under his unbuttoned shirt in the firelight children to the health of the sovereign emperor to victory over our enemies hurrah he cried in his youthful old hussar's baritone the hussars crowded around and answered in friendly wise with a tremendous shout late that night when all had separated denisof laid his stubby hand on his favourite rostov's shoulder in the field no room for love affairs when one's so much in love with the tsar said he denisof don't jest on this subject cried rostov this is such an exalted such a noble feeling that 
I agree with you, I agree with you, my friend. I understand, I approve. No, you can't understand it, and Rostov got up and began to wander among the watchfires, and dreamed of what bliss it would be to die, as to losing his life he did not dare think of that, but simply to die in the presence of his sovereign. He was really in love, not only with the Tsar, but also with the glory of the Russian arms, and the hope of impending victory. And he was not the only one who experienced this feeling on the memorable days that preceded the Battle of Austerlitz. Nine-tenths of the men composing the Russian army were at that time in love, though perhaps less ecstatically, with their Tsar and the glory of the Russian arms. End of chapter 10